Most of you will realize that in our study of this epistle to the Romans, we have now come to chapter 6 and are considering verses 6 and 7 in particular. Verses 6 and 7 in the sixth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, I would remind you that in these two verses, the apostle is expounding the first part of verse 5. You remember verse 5 is a double statement. He says, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, he takes up the first statement, which says that we were planted together in the likeness of his death. And he's expounding that in these two verses. And this is how he expounds it. He says, the first thing that we know is this, that our old men was crucified with him. Now, we spent most of last Friday evening dealing with that, and we defined the old men as being not our old nature, but the old humanity to which we belonged and which we possessed. We are all of us born into this world, children of Adam, in Adam, and that is our humanity. Of course, it's true to say that as such we have a fallen nature, but the thing we are emphasizing is that the old man stands for that old humanity, and that is what has died. The man I was in Adam died with Christ. I am no longer in Adam. I am now in Christ as a Christian. That old man has gone once and forever. And the apostle says that we know this. Every Christian ought to know that. That our old man was crucified with him, with Christ. But you notice that he doesn't leave it at that. He doesn't stop at that point. He goes on to draw deductions from that fact. Because we were crucified with Christ, there are two main results at any rate. And he's very concerned about these two. And why is he concerned to draw these deductions? Well, he is, he is concerned to do that because, as I must go on reminding you, he is still dealing with the false objection to his teaching which he has put before us in verse 1. We must never lose sight of that in interpreting this chapter. It is meant to deal with this charge that is brought against his preaching of justification by faith, that it means, in effect, that we might as well then continue in sin in order that grace may abound. He's refuting that. He's showing what a monstrous suggestion it is. And especially he is concerned to show what an utterly false deduction it is from this teaching which he is giving them. Now then, it is, I say, in order to show that and to prove that, that he draws these true deductions from the fact that our old man was crucified with Christ. Very well, what are his deductions? Well, the word that leads us to them. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that. And that means in order that, for the purpose of, that it might lead to the end. In other words, this is the object, this, this is the purpose of the crucifixion of our old men with Christ. And the purpose, I say, is a double one. The first is that the body of sin might be destroyed. And the second is that we should henceforth not serve sin. Now there are the two things that he says that follow inevitably from our being crucified, having been crucified with Christ. Now what does he mean by these things? Take this first one. That the body of sin 
might be destroyed. Here is a tremendous statement and a most important statement. And it is very essential that we should grasp and understand its meaning. The term, of course, that comes before us at once is this term, the body of sin. What does he mean by the body of sin? Let's get our translation right. That the body of sin might be disannulled, rendered inert, rendered ineffective. That's what it means. The term destroyed is not strictly accurate because it carries a certain meaning with it. What he's concerned to say is that it's rendered ineffective, rendered inert, put out of action. But first I say we've got to look at this term, the body of sin. What does it mean? Now, there are those who do not hesitate to say, and you'll find it in their commentaries, that this just means the old man again. And that's how they put it. They say, the old man, the body of sin, in other words, the old man. So that um, what they're saying here is that uh, the apostle is telling us that the body, that we were crucified, the old man was crucified with Christ, that the old man might be rendered ineffective, or null and void, or inert. Now, why do you think they say that? Well, they do that because it seems to me they've gone astray in their interpretation of the old man. And that is why I was so concerned last week to emphasize that the old man does not mean the old nature. Because here the apostle in this phrase we're looking at tonight is really dealing with the old nature. But that was why I was concerned to say that the old man doesn't mean the old nature, because if it does, well then the apostle is just saying that uh, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the old man might be rendered inert. And if he meant that, why didn't he say so? Why did he deliberately confuse us by bringing in a new term, if he's still speaking about the same thing exactly? Now the apostle doesn't do that sort of thing. He would have said then, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that he might be destroyed, or that he might be rendered ineffective or inert. And there's no difficulty at all. But here he suddenly brings in a new term, the body of sin. So that I would have argued that merely on general principles on the surface, the body of sin cannot possibly mean just again the old man. But surely there's a further argument. The apostle has been arguing that the old man was crucified once and for all. That is an action that is complete. But here he says that this is something that is yet to happen. That the body of sin might be destroyed. Well, you can't say at one and the same time, that a thing has been done and done completely once and forever, and that it might be done. But if you interpret the uh, old men as mean, meaning sinful nature, and saying body of sin just again means sinful nature, well, it uh, means that you are just in that position, that you are saying that something has already been done in order that it may be done. Well, the Apostle Paul doesn't argue like that. That isn't the kind of thing he does. And it seems to me that that... Uh, uh, explanation and attempt at exegesis of this statement really is entirely and completely wrong. And it's amazing that uh, certain commentators, especially, I'm almost afraid to mention names because I'm given to understand that as I do, it affects the sale of books in the bookroom, uh, so that I must be careful. But um, it is still more important that we should understand the scriptures even than that we should sell good books. But I do hope that nobody is foolish enough to imagine that because at certain points I venture a criticism of certain great men and their great works, that that means that, means that I don't approve of their works. I hope that I have made it clear all along that the two best commentaries that I know of on the epistle to the Romans are those by Charles Hodge and Robert Halden. And I think every student of the scriptures should have them. Well, now then, 
but uh, as I say, no man is infallible. If we therefore interpret this body of sin as meaning the old man again, well, it lands us, it seems to me, in that impossible position. Others think that the body of sin is a kind of figurative term that is used by the apostle to represent the whole mass of sin. To bring out the idea, you see, that we are, our problem is not so much particular sins as that there is such a thing as sin itself. The whole mass. And it's so big and so protean in its manifestations and so varied in its way of dealing with us that they say it can be compared very accurately to a body. It's got different parts and portions, head and trunk and hands and feet, the body of sin. They say he was just using a figure of speech to give this representation of sin as something big and organized and powerful and something that needs to be slain as a body can be slain or crucified. The whole mass of sin should be disannulled or destroyed. Well, of course, there is a sense in which that is perfectly right and perfectly true. I agree, and I'm going on to emphasize this, that what the apostle is concerned to do in this whole section is to show that under this rule and reign of grace, our total connection with sin is to be banished altogether. We are to be delivered entirely from sin, the whole of sin. That undoubtedly is the thing that the apostle is emphasizing in the section. But that doesn't mean that this must of necessity be the true explanation of the term, the body of sin. And I personally cannot accept it as the true explanation here. And I've got certain reasons for saying that. Look at this word body. And it really does mean body. It's the same word that we will find the apostle using in verse 12, where he says, let not sin therefore reign in you a mortal body, and so on. In other words, we will find, and I want to give you some references now, that the apostle in this whole argument in this section, in chapter 6 and 7, has a great deal to say about the body. And I suggest to you that when he talks about the body, he means the same thing. Unless you've got a very good reason for saying that the body, the term the body, doesn't mean the same thing in every case, well, then you must assume that it does mean the same thing in every case. And I fail to see any good reason for varying the meaning here. Now then, let me give you some of the ways in which the apostle uses this term body. Look at it there, as I say in, in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. That's the thing he's concerned about. In verse 11, he starts his application. He begins making appeals to us. He is making an appeal on the basis of all that he's just been saying. And this is the appeal. Reckon ye yourselves, therefore, to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign where? Well, in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Then go on to verse 13. Neither yield ye your members. He means they're the members of our body. The parts and portions of our, mem of our body as instruments. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, parts of the body, remember, as instruments of righteousness unto God. Then go on to verse 19. And you'll find he says this. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, parts of the body, servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity, even so now, yield your members, these same members, parts of your body, servants to righteousness and to holiness. Now there are the uses of the word body in various forms in chapter 6. But come along to chapter 7. 
And this is what you will find him saying. Start at verse 17. He's saying here, this is the context, if then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Then verse 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. You notice the distinction? It is no longer I that do it. Well, what is it then? Well, it's sin that dwelleth in me. Go on to verse 18. For I know that in me, that is, we have in brackets, in my flesh, that is, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Go on to verse 20. For now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it. Well, what is it then? Oh, sin that dwelleth in me. You see, that's a repetition more or less of verse 17. And then go on, and he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law. Well, where is it? In my members. In my members. Parts of my body. Warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And then, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This body the members of which are doing this all along and dragging me down. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Now there you notice some very striking uses of this word body which is found in the sixth verse of the sixth chapter. But we haven't finished. We have to go on now to chapter 8. And here we start in verse 10. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. The contrast is between the body and the spirit. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. By his spirit that dwelleth in you. Marvelous thing this he says. That even your mortal body is going to be quickened and raised eventually. And then you see he goes on. Therefore brethren we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Now then verse 13. For if ye live after the flesh ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, he shall live. And he really means body there. He's not talking about sinful flesh. He uses the term body. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And then we jump on to verse 23, where he's looking forward now to the final consummation. And he says, and not only they... But ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. What's that? To wit, the redemption of our body. Now, you notice, therefore, that in this great section, chapter 6, 7, right on to 8, the apostle is very concerned about the body. And I am simply suggesting to you that the meaning of the word body in verse 6 is identical with the meaning of the word body in all these other verses that I've been quoting to you. I've just got other verses in chapter 12. Listen to this. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 12. Now he's again got one of his great summaries in the light of all the doctrine. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, 
but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now then, I argue therefore that the use of this word body here in chapter 6 where he's talking about the body of sin is consistent with and identical with the use of the term body in all those other verses. What does the term the body of sin therefore mean? It means this. It is the body, our physical bodies, of which sin has taken possession. Or if you like, sin, the body of sin means sin as it dwells in us in our present embodied condition. That's another way I would put it. Sin as it dwells in us in our present embodied condition. Now let's be quite clear about this. He is not referring to the body as such in and of itself. But he is referring to the body as the sphere in which sin and death still reign in us. Now here is the vital distinction as I see it. The distinction between I myself as a personality and my body. Now, I say the meaning of the term body of sin is that he is asserting here that sin still reigns and rules not in me, not over me, but it tends to do so over my body. Now, let me be perfectly clear about this because you will find that some of the great commentators are afraid to say what I've just said for this reason. They at once hold up their hands and they say, no, if we say that, are we not saying, therefore, that sin is something material? You know, there are false teachings, Hinduism and things like that. They teach that sin is something material and that it dwells in our bodies and that, therefore, our bodies are essentially evil and that the body is the source of all evil and the source of all sin. And that therefore salvation means the spirit liberated out of the body. So they regard death as the way of salvation. Some of them, of course, as you know, uh, uh, talk about reincarnation. And there are people who call themselves Christians who believe in that kind of thing these days. But uh, that is what those Eastern religions teach. That the body is essentially sinful. That sin is something material, which... It dwells in the man's body. And that the whole trouble with our lives is that we've got these evil, sinful bodies and that we should long to be liberated out of them. Now, that is not what I'm saying at all. That is false teaching. That is utter, absolute heresy. What then does it mean? Well, it means this. Sin, when man sinned, when Adam sinned, Sin obtained a complete mastery over him. Now, we saw that so clearly when we were dealing with chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Sin dominated his life, the whole of him, body, mind, and spirit. Yes, but in particular, it had this effect. And this is true still of every man who is not a Christian. This is true of everyone who is still in Adam. He is a man whose life is dominated by the body. By these powers, these instruments, these members that are in the body. They control him instead of his controlling them. That is man in sin. That is man in Adam. Sin is in control. He's under the dominion of sin. He's under the rule and the reign of sin. And he's become upside down as it were. The material, animal part of him is controlling him. His body is supreme. And he's governed, as this apostle puts it in writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and in the second and third verses. He said, we all had our conversation in times past in that way, he said. What was it then? Well, we obeyed the lusts of the flesh, even the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And that is the life that is lived tonight by all who are not Christians. 
all who are in sin, all who are in Adam. But in Christ, that is no longer the case. What is the position of the Christian? Well, the position of the Christian is this. Let me put it in the first person singular. I myself, because of my union with Christ, because I have died with him, because I have been buried with him, because I have risen again with him, I myself am dead to sin. I have finished with it. It has nothing to do with me. But, you see, though it has nothing to do with me, it still has a good deal to do with my body. Now let me try and make this plain and clear to you. I myself am already in Christ seated in the heavenly places. That's what I'm told about myself. I died with him. I was buried with him. I've risen with him. I've ascended with him. I am seated with him in the heavenly places. I am. That's what he's been telling us. The old man has gone. I am no longer that man. I am a new man in Christ Jesus. That's the truth about me. Yes. But though that is the truth about me, it is not yet the truth about my body, my mortal body. Sin is still in my mortal body, in my members, working as a law in my members, having its effect upon my instruments, my members, the parts of my body. And that is what I suggest the Apostle means by the term the body of sin. Sin remains in its influence upon the body, not upon me. I'm entirely and eternally outside its realm of influence. But it has pleased God in his eternal wisdom to leave sin in the body. Now you notice a kind of parallel, don't you? with the Old Testament, when God took the children of Israel into Canaan, when he delivered them out of Egypt, took them across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, across Jordan, gave them the promised land, he left certain of the nations in that promised land. And they had to struggle with them. It seems to me there's a very wonderful parallel there between God's way of dealing with his ancient people on that level and God's way of dealing with his people now on the spiritual level. The body is not yet delivered from the effects of sin and the fall. But I am. And so, you see, the apostle is taking us from step to step and stage to stage. Now, I do trust that it's clear to everybody that I am not teaching that the body is essentially and inherently sinful. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this, that sin which formerly governed the whole of my personality, is now only governing or trying to govern the bodily part of me. I, in spirit, I, as a soul, I, as a personality, am delivered. I'm dead to sin. That was his original proposition, you remember. How shall we that die to sin live any longer therein? Now, this is to me a most vital and essential distinction. Let's be clear about the body. The body in and of itself is not sinful. The body, as you know, has got these various parts and portions, what he calls the members, the instincts and the propensities and so on. Now, there is nothing sinful in that in and of itself. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a body. Now, let us never forget that the Lord Jesus Christ, in his body as a man, had the same body as we have. He had the same instincts, every one of them. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have been a man. Let us remember that we are told that he was tempted in all points like as we are. In other words, the devil tried to tempt him along the line of all his natural instincts, every one of them. We sometimes don't realize that, do we? But he was tempted in all points, 
like as we are. And what the devil does is to come to us and he tempts us along the line of our natural instincts and the various drives and urges and powers of our bodies, what Paul calls the members, the instruments. Now you must draw this distinction, therefore. There is nothing wrong at all in the body itself as such. There is nothing wrong with all these instincts. Nothing. Now there have been false teachers in the past who have said that some of these natural instincts you see are sinful. There have been people who have regarded, I must mention it, they have regarded the sex instinct as inherently and essentially sinful. But it isn't. It's God who gave it us. It's God who's put it as a vital part of the body. There's nothing wrong in sex. Well, what is wrong? Well, what's wrong is when sex dominates the whole person instead of being kept in its right position and put to its right use. It's the same with hunger instinct and all these instincts. If you eat too much, it's equally sinful. But do you condemn the fact that you want food because some people eat too much and make gluttons and beasts of themselves? Well, it's equally monstrous to do the same thing with sex. Let us not forget that the Lord Jesus Christ was a man and had all the powers and propensities and faculties of a male human being. And he was tempted in all points along that line as we are, yet without sin. Now then, what was the difference between the Lord Jesus Christ in the body and every one of us? It was this, that we are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. He was born holy, that holy one that shall be born of thee. Every one of these instincts and all his powers and faculties and propensities were in the right proportion and kept in their right places, and the devil couldn't tempt him. There was never any disturbance. But you and I are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. And that means this, you see, that we are born with the wrong balance. We are born with the bodily elements predominating, tyrannizing over us, running away with us. We, therefore, have to contend with lust. Our Lord never had to contend with lust. There was no evil lust in him. The devil tried to tempt him to lust, but he never succeeded. But we are creatures of lust. We are born such. That is because we are born in Adam and because we inherit his fallen nature. So you see that I am not teaching that the body is essentially evil or that sin is something that resides in the body only and that the body as such is sinful. Not at all. But what I am saying is this. That sin still has its power over the body even in the man who is in Christ. He is delivered. His body is not yet delivered. And that is why I believe the Apostle says what he says in chapter 18, verse 23. We are looking for the adoption, he says. We are longing for that adoption. What is it? To wit, the redemption of our body. That is something that is yet to come. That has not yet been experienced by us. Now then, let me put another term to you. I suggest, therefore, that this term... The body of sin is identical with the term the flesh. That is what the scripture means by the flesh. It doesn't mean the body in and of itself, but it does mean the body as it is being used and tyrannized over by sin. It means the body as it is possessed by sin and by evil. It is the body as sin dwells in it. As, as we are at present. So that I am suggesting here that the Apostle is teaching us something like this, knowing this, that our old man, our old humanity, was crucified with him. That, this is one of the results and one of the purposes and the objects, that this hold of sin upon us, even in the body, might be rendered null and void and ineffective. This is a most tremendous conception. What is the object of salvation? The object of salvation is this, that we may be rid entirely and completely of sin and its effects. Adam was once perfect. 
There was no sin in him at all. And Adam, in his state of innocence, was able to use these instincts in a natural, in a normal manner, without being sinful at all. But because of his sin, it all became unnatural, upside down, no longer balanced, the body predominating and tyrannizing and controlling, so that men don't even think straightly. You see, the mind, after all, is one of the functions of the body. It's through the brain that it works and so on, and all these things have been affected by sin and are governed by it in the whole of its outlook. But the object of salvation is to deliver us from the whole tyranny of sin. Every part of it, even the body itself, is going to be emancipated and set free. Now then, the apostle says that. You see, the object is, he says, that the body of sin might be destroyed, might be made inert, might be annulled, might be reduced to a condition of impotence. So he doesn't mean this, you see, that the body is going to be destroyed, not at all. He's saying this is something that can happen to you now. The object is that even while you are yet in this world, you may more and more approximate to the condition that Adam was in before he fell, to the condition that is to be seen in our blessed Lord and Savior himself. That you may live your life in the body even while still on earth, as the Lord Jesus Christ lived it in the body while he was here on earth. It doesn't mean that our bodies are going to be destroyed before we can essentially be fully redeemed. No, no, he says, this should be evident more and more while we are still here. Actually, it won't happen to us completely and perfectly until our bodies have been glorified. And that is why he says that we look forward to this adoption, which is the redemption of our bodies. And he was so concerned about this, he says it in other places. Do you remember that great and mighty and thrilling statement there at the end of that third chapter of the epistle to the Philippians? Listen to it. Our conversation is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20. I myself, he says, though I'm still alive in this world, I'm a citizen of heaven. That's where I belong. That's where my home is. I'm a stranger here. We as Christians are a colony of heaven. This isn't a homeland, this world. This is a colony of heaven. Our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do we look for him so much? We are there with him. Our citizenship is there. But now here on earth we are looking for his coming. Why? Well, for this reason. Who shall change our vile body? And this isn't a figurative term. He really does mean the physical body, as he always means by this. Who shall change our vile body? Or if you prefer it, who shall change this, the body of our humiliation? that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, like unto the body of his glorification, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. There is a day coming, says the apostle, when even my body shall have been delivered from the final effects and influences of the reign and the rule of sin. Not yet, but it's coming. Even here and now, as I understand this, I should be lessening that evil effect of sin upon my body. But finally, I shall have even a glorified body. I myself in Christ am already glorified. Whom he hath justified, whom he hath called them, hath he also justified. And whom he hath justified, then he hath also glorified. I am glorified. A day is coming when my body shall be glorified. That's the argument. And what he's saying in this sixth verse of the sixth chapter is that that is really the ultimate objective behind my old man being crucified with him. My old man was crucified with him that I might be delivered entirely even in the body where sin now reigns still. How monstrous is it therefore, he says, 
to suggest, as these people are doing, that let us continue in sin that grace might abound. The whole object of grace and of salvation is to deliver us from sin in every part, already in person, in personality, finally even in the body. How can anybody suggest, therefore, that this is a teaching which says, let us continue in sin that grace may abound? The thing, says Paul, is monstrous. So he brings in his second argument, which is this, that henceforth we should no longer serve sin. That henceforth we should not serve sin. That's just another way of saying it. He means this, that henceforth we should no longer be the slaves of sin. He doesn't just mean that we should no longer commit acts of sin. He says, no, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. He is looking at it in general. Man in Adam is a slave of sin. He has no freedom. The natural man, the sinful man, has no freedom at all. He is the slave of sin. Man's always a slave. He's either the slave of Adam or he's the bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. The business of redemption is to deliver us from the slavery of sin. The Christian is no longer the slave of sin. But alas, he still often allows it to rule in his body. It remains in his body and he allows it far too often to rule him and to govern him. He shouldn't. There's no excuse for him for doing so. That's why the Apostle has written this sixth chapter. And that's why he will say in verses 12 and 13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Don't do it, says Paul. Don't be a fool. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of unrighteousness, as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now then, as I close, I do trust that this is clear to you, that my distinction between the old man and the body of sin is rather an important one. And that is why I have fought so much against this idea that the old man means the old nature, and that the old man and the body of sin are one and the same thing. If you believe that, well, you'll still be in bondage. Listen to what some of these men say. Listen to one of these commentators saying a thing like this. He says, Now that we are Christians, we have to oppose the old man. What nonsense. You don't have to oppose the old man. The old man was crucified with Christ. And the apostle goes on to tell us that he not only died with him, but was even buried. Do you go on opposing somebody who has been buried in a grave? You see the muddle you get into if you don't keep these terms distinct and separate and have them clearly in your mind. Listen to another statement. We gradually die to the old man. What nonsense. We gradually die to the old man, but the old man's dead. He's gone once and forever. Listen to another. They talk about our gradual deliverance from the dying old man. But Paul, you see, has not only told us that the old man died once and forever, but that the old man has already been buried. You remember how he emphasized that? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. Well, it seems to me to be a very wrong procedure to, to bury somebody who is only in a state of dying. If the old man is still only the dying old man, it's a monstrous crime to bury him. But Paul says that we've not only died with Christ, that the old man not only died with him, but was buried with him. You see, when Paul says a thing like this, he isn't saying it just for saying it. He knew that people would get up and say things like this. He says, look here, you don't die to that old man. The old man is not going through a process of dying. He's died and he's been buried. He's gone once and forever. He's finished. 
he's even risen again. Our monsters, therefore, to talk about being delivered gradually from the dying old man. Well, then, listen to this. By a great Christian and commentator and expositor, I'm referring to Abram Kuyper, a man again to whose work on the Holy Spirit I attach great significance. It's one of the best books you'll ever find on the Holy Spirit. But listen to Abram Kuyper actually saying a thing like this. God's child remains the old man's grave digger until the hour of his own departure. Did you get that? God's child, this new man in Christ, remains the old man's grave digger until the hour of his own departure. That's Abram Kuyper. What Paul says is this, that the old man was not only crucified with Christ, not only died with Christ, but was buried with Christ. Abram Kuyper is trying to bury somebody who was buried nearly 2,000 years ago. And this is also important for this reason, that if you are not clear about this and are still trying to kill this old man and trying to bury him, well, you'll be in bondage, you'll be unhappy. There's only one way of release and deliverance is to realize this, that we died to sin, that the old man died to sin once and forever. And that is that old humanity, that Adamic nature. The old man does not mean the old nature. The body of sin means that. The old man, I say, has not to be killed. You needn't dig a grave for him. He's been buried in it. When Christ was buried in his grave, he was with him in it. And Paul will go on in verses 8, 9, and 10 to remind us of the same thing again. Well, let me close by quoting to you out of the Heidelberg Catechism, the 43rd question. They ask there in that 43rd question, what then are further results of the death of Christ? And here's the answer. That by virtue of his death, our old man is crucified and buried with him. That's better. Abram Kuyper must have forgotten the Heidelberg Catechism at that point. Our old man is crucified and buried with him. That so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh you see, the Heidelberg Catechism is right. It draws a distinction between the old man and the flesh. The old man is crucified and buried with him that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. The old man is not the flesh, is not the corrupt nature. The old man is the Adamic nature, the old humanity. The flesh is the body of sin, the body in which sin tends to tyrannize still, the body in which still sin remains yet. But I'm guaranteed that under this process and reign of grace, even the body shall be delivered. But until that day of the glorification of the body, what I am told is this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it, in the lusts thereof. The way, in other words, to deal with sin in the body, in the flesh, is to realize the truth about yourself even now, the truth of what is possible to you even with your body here and now, but the final glorious truth of the glorification, the final emancipation, even of the body itself, so that the whole man will be entirely and perfectly and fully delivered from the reign and the tyranny and the rule of sin. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we again come before thee that we may offer up our praise and our thanksgiving for the wonderful things that we have been considering together. O oh God, forbid it that any one of thy children should be uncertain in this congregation that he or she, as a personality, has died once and forever to that Adamic nature, to that Adamic position. O oh God, grant that all may see and know 
that that old man died with Christ, was crucified with him, died with him, was buried with him, and has risen again with him. O oh Lord, enable us all to see clearly that we are at this moment seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Help us to see it, O oh God, so clearly that we shall no longer be afraid of Satan and of sin as once we were. Help us to see it so clearly that we shall resist the devil and he will flee from us. Help us to see that we ourselves are entirely out of the clutches of sin and evil, that there is therefore no longer any condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Help us to see ourselves as we are, that we may see the battle that we still have to wage with sin in the body as we should see it, that we should no longer be depressed nor afraid, but that we should be enabled to heed these exhortations of thy word and thus conquer and master and yield our members as instruments of righteousness unto holiness that we may reap that final end of full eternal life. O oh Lord, we pray thee therefore that we all may know the liberty and the rejoicing that we may see ourselves, we ourselves, as we are in thy sight at this moment, and that therefore we may be enabled with confidence and assurance and with power, born of this understanding of the truth, to deal with sin as it still remains in our mortal members. Lord, bless thine own truth and word to us to this end, that we may live and function for thee in such a way that others seeing us shall be convicted of sin and drawn to thy dear Son, our blessed Lord and Saviour. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain earthly life and pilgrimage and until the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.